Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hi. Um, <clears throat> I want to start the talk tonight by uh, sharing uh, a little bit of my own uh, personal journey leading into the topic of the talk after hearing Kamala talk about her early days. Um, it, it fit with this particular talk um, <clears throat> and it's relevant, I hope. <clears throat> when I... Um, I first got into um, Buddha Dharma um, going out to uh, Naropa uh, Institute. It was Naropa Institute in 1974. Um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned that I went out and uh, spoke to, uh, to Ramdas, who then pointed me to Joseph Goldstein. And uh, the reason I went out there was because I had been uh, carrying around, be here now, like a Bible for about three years. And I thought for those who have not seen it, this is the book that changed my life and many, many people of my generation. And when I read this book, um, the guru from the book, Neem Karoli Baba, also known as Maharaji, um, it, was, it was kind of mysterious. Maybe you've had this experience with some books uh, where he, he didn't just speak to me, it just kind of, he lipped out from the pages right into my heart. And I thought I'd also just uh, bring him into the room with us. This is Neem Karoli Baba. Happy looking guy, isn't he? <laughs> Who kind of reminds me not to take things too seriously. And I um, went to Joseph's class and heard the Dharma and heard what um, I knew was going to be my path. And I um, then, after that first summer, um, I went back to New York where I was living, living on my own in my own apartment. And there was no sitting group around that I knew of. Um, can you imagine that? This is not one sitting group. There, there probably were some Zen groups and maybe some Tibetan groups, but I wanted to be with my family. and. Um, and I didn't know of any sitting group. But I was so diligent and I just believed in the practice and I was sitting every day and just so grateful that I'd found the practice. And then um, in 1975, uh, Joseph told me that Ram Dass was doing a small invitation only group class. And he knew that I had been very much impacted by Ram Dass and be here now. <clears throat> and um, 
So he said, you might want to check it out. So I went to speak to Ramdas to see if it kind of, if it would work out, if it fit. But I had been um, a Buddhist by that time, almost card carrying. And, um, and he knew that I said, this is my practice. Um, and yet Maharaji really opened up my, my heart. But this scene was gonna be a Hindu scene you know, with mala beads and chanting, Sri Ram, Jai Ram, and all that kind of stuff. And um, so it was, we were gonna just see whether it really fit. And, um, and among other things in that conversation, there were quite a few things that happened in the conversation, I'll probably mention uh, more later on in the talk. But among other things, he said, you know, if you're do- this, is a, this is a real sadhana of letting go, a spiritual practice of letting go. And uh, you have to let go of, you have to be celibate, uh, your diet, uh, vegetarian, have to do yoga, you have to, and you have to meditate every day, twice a day. I said, oh, no problem. But then he said, um, but you have to give up your meditation. I said, what do you mean? He said, no, we're, we're not going to do Vipassana here. And I said, uh. <laughs> it was the one thing that I believed in. And I couldn't just actually just say, oh, sure, okay, I'm in. I said, let me just think about it for a few days and get back to you. And I spoke to Joseph in the meantime. I said, look, I think it'll be good for me, but I don't know, he wants me to stop doing Vipassana. What do you think? And Joseph said, what is he gonna do, tell you to not be aware? (laughs) He said, just check it out, Just, just see. And then and the, the class was going to be coming up in a couple of uh, weeks, and I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I didn't know. I had done TM, but I didn't think that was what I was supposed to be doing. And I, so I called him, and I said, hey, listen, I'm, okay, I'm, I said, I'm in. And he said, okay, good. And then I, but I didn't know what to do, so I called him back a couple of days later. I said, what am I supposed to be doing? You know, what, what kind of meditation am I supposed to be doing? And he was quiet for a while, and then he said, oh, you can do Vipassana. (laughs) I said, Vipassana? He said, yeah, it's a great practice. You see moment by moment. You just see things clearly. And and he started laughing. And then I realized he didn't mean I had to really give it up. He wanted to see if I would give it up if I was attached to, to even that. He said, do Vipassana, great practice. <laughs> and then I, I went to the, the first class, and he, um, uh, he got into a dialogue with another Buddhist meditator who was very strident about his path being really the real Dharma. And he, they're going through this, it was very intense period in, uh, in, in Ram Dass's teaching. And uh, 
he went back and forth with him. And in the middle, he turned to me and he said, he's the only friend you have in this room. (laughs) And then he kicked him out. He kicked him out of the class. He said, this class isn't for you. Uh, Good luck to you. I gulped. What did I get myself into? Uh, I was not nearly as strident anyway. But, and I got so much, it was, it was an amazing experience. For that year, I was in that class. I learned a lot, learned just, and just hanging out with that energy. But I went through the whole year saying, am I, is in my path bhakti path, devotional path, or Buddhist path? Bhakta, or am I a bhakta or a Buddhist? And I asked him a number of times, what's, what's the right path for me? And he would uh, consistently in one way or another say, don't worry about choosing your path. Your path will choose you. And I played this little ping pong um, match in my mind for most of that year until towards the end of the year, something dawned on me, which will be, we're getting to the, subject of the, of the class, of the, the talk. Maharaji's main instructions, and in fact, what got me to Naropa in the first place was a vinyl set. I tried to find the vinyl set. There's someplace in my house, and I said, I can't find it, Jane. Uh, but it's there somewhere. But it was a vinyl set of records called Love, Serve, Remember. And actually, Ramdas's website now is called, it's still called Love, Serve, Remember. And Maharaji's teachings came down to love everyone, serve everyone, remember God. That was it. And it dawned on me at some point, love everyone, serve everyone, remember God is really the same thing as non-hatred, non-greed, non-delusion. The three sources of happiness and well-being in Buddhist teachings. So I wanted to explore those three sources of happiness put in the more Buddhist context of the order non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, but it's really the same. Non-greed, serve everyone, having a, coming from a generous heart of service and contribution. Non-hatred, love. Non-delusion, remember, remember the deepest wisdom The, uh, maybe you're familiar with Joseph's uh, wonderful book, One Dharma. And the title of the book comes from a, um, a couplet from the, the third Zen patriarch, Verses on the Faith Mind, where he says, uh, Sengstan says, um, there is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. There is one dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. Truth is the truth. 
It comes in many packages, many forms. Maybe you've heard the, the story when Jack Cornfield, he had been with uh, Ajahn Chah for an, a few years, four years, I think it was, as a, as a monk. And before he left to come back to the States, he, he spoke to Ajahn Chah. He said, you know, I think I want to teach this stuff. Do you have any advice for me? And Ajahn Chah thought for a moment. He said, yeah, I can think of one thing. You might call it Christianity. <laughs> Whatever you call it, the truth is the truth. And the Buddha himself said towards the end of his life, go forth, O bhikkhus, and speak in the idiom of the language that, of those that you encounter. So when I put that together, oh, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, the same thing as love, serve, remember. It was like everything just kind of came together and I didn't have to choose. Uh, I ended up, of course, obviously, this was still my practice and my path, although as perhaps you sensed, um, there is an element of Neem Karoli Baba shining through because uh, uh, I, I feel like the heart is so important in, in doing this practice. And I spoke a bit about this in the, um, my last talk on um, intention. Remember when I talked about intention? In every moment you are choosing, consciously or not, in the direction of suffering or happiness because the roots of suffering are greed, hatred, and delusion, and the roots of happiness and well-being are non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Mm. But I wanna now focus not so much on the intention, but on those three aspects, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, with a little bit more um, depth, I hope, detail. And first, the thing to uh, that I want to underscore is that every moment of mindfulness is a moment that you are cultivating those three. Every single moment, remember when I spoke about in terms of Vedana, when you see pleasant and you don't grasp, it's a moment of non-greed. When you see the unpleasant and you don't push away, it's a moment of non-aversion, non-hatred. And every moment that's neutral, where you see clearly, is a moment of non-delusion, particularly if you're not identifying with the experience, because that's the key, and it was, that's been spoken of a bit here in the other talks. But I want to go into all of those. <clears throat> so, first, non-greed, when there is a moment of mindfulness, you are both cultivating, you're cultivating the capacity not only to not grasp, but to let go of the grasping. And it's a, you're cultivating a heart that lets go and opens. Sorry, you okay? 
And it's really a movement from the second noble truth, the cause of suffering is attachment, tanha, to the third noble truth, the end of suffering. Of course, the full flowering is is the full awakening, but in every moment that you're letting go, there's the cessation of attachment and a moment of freedom. And here's a, I think I I might have read a bit of this, but um, I'll read a bit more around this. This is from uh, Gendon Rinpoche. He says, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. True happiness does not mean having all your desires gratified. And uh, it was uh, Andrea uh, gave a a beautiful uh, little dormette one of the mornings here about desire and not needing to have all your desires satisfied. But really the peace comes from the end of desire, not having every desire met. Because the way the game is, we're wired up is that unless we're really clear, desire begets desire. You get it gratified and it feels so good that you think that's what happiness is about. Let's go for that. And then it fades. And then what's the next thing I can manufacture and then get gratified? And most people think if they can put their moments of desire and gratification close enough together so that there's no gaps, that's it. That's happiness. You can see the futility in this. But there we are, most of us, just completely addicted to, to our desires. <clears throat> when really, it's such a relief to not have desire. Have you noticed that? Maybe there are some moments where you've just felt, hmm, this moment is just fine, just the way it is. That's what the Buddha is talking about. And sometimes you can have so many choices that it can be a little bit overwhelming. When I was growing up, we had three channels on TV. Now there are about 500 or 700, depending upon what your satellite dish is capable of. What do I see? Oh, if you have fear of missing out, you're in trouble, you know. Or I remember when Baskin Robbins first came out, 31 flavors? Well, how cool, but what do I choose? You know? And I'm remembering one, one time, it was one of my first three-month retreats at IMS. Um, Thanksgiving came, 
And I had been really uh, doing great with going into the dining room, eating really simply, simple foods. I had, you know, a slice of bread, toast in the evening. That was all I needed. One Thanksgiving, I'll never forget, it, it was, I think they did this on purpose to kind of, you know, blow your mind. Not only were there, you know, mounds of delicious entrees, but after you got your food with a full plate, you could see there were five different kinds of dessert. I could barely taste my food for the main course as I was thinking about what dessert I was going to take. You know. And when I got, I was, it was, I was, I was just so spun out from that meal. I, I remember it 40 years later, more than 40 years later. It was the, the most unpleasant meal of that whole retreat. So even if you're a, a diligent yogi, you're subject to this little trap. And I just want to read to you what we're up against. This is... Um, Economist Victor Lebeau, who was, um, he was a, a, a very uh, um, highly respected economist who wrote this just after World War II ended when, um, when the, mm, the notion of, of a consumer came into uh, high art. And he said, this is what this is what he wrote, which was prophetic. He said, Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. That's how the system is rigged, so that you can say, oh, that will make me happy. You, know, you ever see Real Simple? You know the magazine Real Simple? If you've ever seen it, it's about 250 pages, mostly of ads that say, if you get this, this will make your life simple. Oh, and you need this too to make your life simple. Oh, and this one too. But people love it, love getting the magazine because it sounds so appealing. Real simple, I'll take some of that. You know. This is another way of doing it, of looking at it. <clears throat> oh, by the way, one, one other little anecdote. Somebody asked John D. Rockefeller, at the time he was the richest person in the world, how much money will be enough Mr. Rockefeller, and his response was, just a little more. <laughs> this is uh, the uh, Buddhist economist and monk and, and uh, scholar P.A. Paiuta talking about the Buddhist principle of moderation n known as matanuta, or just the right amount. An awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being 
coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of endless desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. So this is seeing through that grasping mind and hopefully understanding the power of non-greed, non-grasping. Letting go really opens us up to contentment. Oh, this moment is enough. And I'm sure you've had those moments as I mentioned a few moments ago. But even more, you start to feel full. There's a fullness, a sufficiency in the moment, that feeling of enoughness. As my son Adam uh, came back from one retreat, he said he discovered this feeling of abundant enoughness, where there's a feeling of completeness and wholeness. And then you just, there's a a spilling over into generosity. Generosity, non-greed, the first paramita of the 10 perfections, the first thing that the Buddha would teach, even before wisdom and loving kindness and equanimity and patience and morality, first one is generosity because It's something that anybody can relate to, both understanding the power of letting go and understanding the interconnectedness that we can share when we are generous. Shantideva, the great um, Tibetan master who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, He says, uh, maybe I read it here the first night, this one line that I love, that awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. I love that line. Into the wealth of giving to life. Mm. Number of uh, years ago, I, I had the the kind of really neat experience of um, Bill and Melinda Gates doing an Awakening Joy workshop with me. At first I said, who is that? And it was them. And what what makes me think about it is just after hearing what uh, Rockefeller said, we got to the chapter on letting go and Melinda gets up and says, I want you to know Being the richest in the world doesn't compare at all with being one of the most generous. That this is where the real happiness is is at. This really, it was a beautiful moment. And she, she, if she was beaming, not not out of pride, but she just wanted everybody to know how good it feels. It feels so much better to give and contribute than to than to get. And uh, Martin Seligman, in his book, Authentic Happiness, 
says the real happiness comes from identifying your particular unique gifts and offering them in a spirit of contribution. That's the real happiness. So I want to uh, just uh, particularly underscore this for us as practitioners. This is where Maharaji said, serve everyone. That it's one thing to be, to let go, and it's another to be generous, and it's a whole other to feel the joy of service. And just... Uh, Remembered, I pulled up a couple of quotes in this. Some, you probably know a few of these. I love these quotes. Albert Schweitzer, I don't know what your destiny will be, but one thing I do know, the only ones among you who will be really happy are those who've sought and found how to serve. Tagore, a famous quote, I slept and, dream and dreamt that life was joy, I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. And Anne Frank, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a, a single moment before starting to improve the world. And here's from Bhikkhu Bodhi that I wanted to, um, I read this most, most every retreat. I think it's so important for us to hear Bhikkhu Bodhi, the great translator of the Pali Canon, who wrote a brilliant essay, A Challenge to Buddhists. You can find it online. He says, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential, attracting the affluent and the educated it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. So this is more than just, oh, being a, a, a nice person, a good person. This is where happiness really lies, in finding your gifts and somehow offering them in this non-greed, this fullness. And every moment that you're mindful, particularly around the pleasant, you are cultivating this capacity of letting go, which directly leads to a, a feeling of the joy of generosity. You probably have experienced it here yourself 
at times where you just feel like giving. How many people have, have felt their generosity grow as they, they've been sitting here, a generous heart? Yeah, it's kind of mysterious how that works. It just, because you're, you're expanding, you're opening, and it's not so much, what about me? It's, ah, how can I feel connected with everything? Okay, on to the second, non-greed, non-hatred. Love everyone. Or at least, you know, the Buddhists, the Buddha had a way of saying, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, kind of negating, didn't put pressure on you to cultivate. But the Hindus, the Bhakti say, go for it, love everyone. You know. <clears throat> The Buddha says in one of the most famous teachings, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an ancient and eternal law. Every moment that you're mindful with an unpleasant Vedna, you are practicing non-aversion or non-hatred. And not only that, but every moment you're mindful of aversion itself, you're not adding to it. <clears throat> Actually, I just want to backtrack a moment because the same thing is true of, of, uh, of, the, of the first non-greed. Every moment that you're not um, grasping, you're cultivating non-aversion. Greed, and every moment that you're mindful of grasping, you're not feeding it, and you are also weakening that factor. So you don't have to say, oh, I blew it, I, there I am, too late. It's never too late. Just whenever you're, even after you're caught, when you're mindful, you unhook the, the snag. So every moment, of unpleasant Vedna that you just see as unpleasant, you're not aversion, um, adding aversion. And when you're averse, when you see aversion, oh, and here's aversive Buddha, you're not feeding it. <clears throat> and that's really also inherent in mindfulness. You know, we talk about, a, I talk about a kind awareness. It's seeing with a friendliness meeting the moment with a friendliness that's not, uh, that's not rejecting, a kind awareness. Um, and you can have a, a, a new attitude towards anything, even, even the dreaded VV, you know, there's VR, Vipassana Romance, and then there's VV, the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> in case you happen to experience that. You know somebody is put there just to ruin your retreat, right? And they seem to be in your space all the time, you know? I have a Vipassana Vendetta story around this that, uh, that was very instructive to me. On one retreat, it was one of the early days at IMS, uh, the three-month retreat, they used to have what's called Zen Week, where you 
the room was configured, everybody sat around the exterior, the, the, uh, the perimeter of the room. And you were there for one week practicing being good Zen students, you know, no slouching. They didn't pull out sticks, but it was like, okay, now we're doing Zen, right? And once you had your, your seat, that was where you were. Okay, I was so excited, going for Zen week. The guy next to me, unfortunately, had this very loud, unpredictable cough. <coughs> and I'd be settling it. <coughs> and I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a long week. I've got to figure out something here. And what I did, fortunately, some, something came to me. I said, okay, every time he coughs, it'll be my little checker, was I being mindful? So he coughed. <coughs> yep, I was here. <laughs> oh no, oh thanks for bringing me back, okay. And it had a whole different flavor to the, to the week. It was like, oh cool, I've got my own mindfulness bell here, so to speak. And as the week went on, he got better, and I felt really good for him. But I started to miss my little coaxing uh, tip. <clears throat> so you can have a different relationship about almost anything. So now I want to talk a bit about the more positive element, about metta, that in every moment that you're mindful of the unpleasant and not bringing aversion to it, you're cultivating a loving heart. And you start with yourself, metta for self. And we've done practice on metta for self and it's been really um, um, inspiring to see how people have m m over time uh, little by little, if not a lot by a lot, been kinder and kinder with your, themselves. I hope you're seeing that. And if you have a hard time seeing your, your, own, uh, seeing your own goodness, um, then you might try, as I, I won't do it here now, but uh, you might try a practice that uh, was really uh, profound for me. Look at yourself through somebody else's eyes. Look at yourself through somebody who really loves you. See what they see. Understand what shines through you, whether or not you realize it. Because you're usually the last one to know. We're all looking at ourselves often through filtered vision that says, oh, and this is wrong, and that's wrong, and that's wrong. But you don't see all the beauty that comes through you that your friends are drawn to, even if they know all of your foibles. And you know how that feels when you're around somebody who is looking and seeing your goodness. It just draws that out of you. What do they see? What is your, think of someone right now in your life who you have a, a, a sweet, loving connection with. And just get a sense of first that connection that you have 
And just for a moment, imagine, why do they like being with you? What do they see? Don't miss it. And so you might just stay connected to your own goodness. That's where it starts, metta for self. Robert Bly says, every part of our personality that we do not learn to embrace will become hostile to us. Every part of our personality that we do not learn to accept and love will become hostile to us. If we don't like our anger, there it is, the enemy. Or our sadness, or our confusion, or our loneliness, or our fear. What is it that's hard for you to accept? That's the place. That's the place to be that wise, loving presence that can say this too. Nothing left out. So that's one level of this non-hatred, this love, starting with ourselves. And then there's the interpersonal connection that we mysteriously are wired up to be so, uh, such a powerful force in our life. We're wired up to want connection and love. This is uh, from Lewis Thomas, who's, who's a, a great um, wisdom teacher, biologist, who wrote a book called Lives of a Cell and other things in, uh, in the 60s, 70s. He says, I maintain, despite the moment's evidence against the claim, that we are born and grow up with a fondness for each other. And we have genes for that. We can be talked out of it, for the genetic message is like a distant music sometimes, and some of us are hard of hearing. Societies are noisy affairs, drowning out the sound of ourselves and our connection. Hard of hearing, we go to war. Stone deaf, we make nuclear missiles. Nonetheless, the music is there, waiting for more listeners. There's another quote I, if I can find. Ah, yeah. Here's Mayor Baba. Love has to spring spontaneously from within. It is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together. But while love cannot be forced upon anyone, it can be awakened through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative. Those who do not have it, catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible. It goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone it touches. 
Those who do not have it catch it from those who have it. But actually the way I see it, it's more like those who are not in touch with it have it awakened from others. It's right in there all along. It just needs to be reminded and awakened. And that's what we do for each other and with each other. There are certain people who we have some mysterious karma where it seems like, I've always known this person. Oh, glad to finally meet you. I remember when I met Jane, uh, my wife. We've been together for 38 years now. And it was like, oh, nice to finally meet you. you know? It's like, I just knew her and we knew each other. And it's kind of mysterious how we have that, those karmic connections. But really, besides those special connections, there are, there's the capacity to open up and feel that connection if you practice it with everyone. That was Maharaji's instruction, love everyone doesn't mean you like everyone. There's a difference. Don't try to like everyone. There are certainly some people in my universe who it's harder for me to like. But to see they are an expression of life. And they are maybe have a different way of seeing things than I do and sometimes do some very hurtful things and I'm gonna do everything I can to prevent that hurt but not to meet it with hate. A number of years ago, I, I don't think I, I shared it here. Did I mention about my Trinidad friend, Lael Ann, the 13-year-old? No. So I, I got a really great transmission a number of years ago. We, we went to Trinidad, somebody had asked us to go there and, uh, and, and teach, um, teach the joy stuff. And I met this 13-year-old girl, Lal Ann, who um, was amazing. And in our conversation, among other things, she said, I'm working on an invention um, that I think can lead to world peace. I was very interested. Oh yeah, let me hear. She said, yeah, it's, it's called a perspective helmet. You put it on and as soon as you put it on, you can understand the perspective of the person you're speaking to. I said, I'll invest in that. If you can figure out how to do it, I think you've got something there. Because that's the secret we're all walking around with our own reality that makes complete sense to us. And if everybody would just see it the way we do, this would be a fine world, right? Unfortunately, everybody else is walking around with that reality, their own reality as well. As the Dalai Lama says, if you're, maybe I said this in one of the, uh, uh, in the uh, Brahma Vihara, if you're, internal reality, if you're somebody is setting, upsetting you, it's just that your internal reality is intersecting with their interreal, internal reality in a way that does not match up with your hopes and expectations. But this is the, the task that we as 
Dharma practitioners have in front of us to not meet ignorance with hatred, to understand and to do what we can and serve and make this a better world, but to come from love. I mean, when you look at the alternative, uh, this world has enough hate. Hatred never ceases by hatred, as the Buddha says. So there's that. There's the interpersonal love. There's loving ourselves. There's the interpersonal love. There's another kind of love that I want to just point out, and some of you have heard this before. And this goes back to being with Ramdas and uh, seeing about getting into that class when I... um, uh, it was a bhakti devotional class, and he said, um, uh, well, uh, let me ask you, you know, where this is this devotional, and I want to know, um, how do you feel about, uh, about uh, Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And I looked at him, and I said, I like Jesus? <laughs> I don't know if I love Jesus, but I, you know, I do, I'm inspired by his teachings, but I don't love him. He said, how about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? (laughs) I like Krishna. (laughs) Just the expression of celebration and, and, and aliveness and joy. I don't know if I love him. And then he said, well, well, what about God? Do you love God? And I said, well, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was raised Jewish, and I, maybe it was the, the religious books, kids' books that I had when I was a kid. I, I think I had one or two big books. And in my mind, when I think of God, there's this big, powerful man with a big beard and a book and a pen saying, you're gonna have a good day and you're not. And instead of loving God, it put the fear of God into me more. So when I hear the word God, I think in terms of, God, of the Dharma. I translate it as, as Dharma. They're just the perfection of everything and how it all is mysteriously in balance, the, the, the mystery of life. He said, oh, he said, well, do you love the Dharma? And that one, I didn't hesitate. I said, oh, absolutely. He said, you sure? I said, absolutely. And then he said, have you ever told the Dharma that you loved it? (laughs) I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what do you mean? He said, say, I love you, Dharma. I said, really? Out loud? He said, yeah, 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 I'll say it with you. And I felt like a complete idiot. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. And he said, keep on saying it. I said, I love you, Dharma. He said it back, and about the third or fourth time, I really felt it. I love you, Dharma. At which point, tears started rolling down my cheeks, and he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. 
And I think it's something really important that we all will benefit from getting in touch with how much you love the Dharma, whether you call it loving the truth or loving goodness or loving awakening, are inspired by life. There's something in you that would get you to sign up for this crazy thing to do, to spend one or two months doing this, that you can't ignore. In the teachings, there's one quality called citta idipada, which is you've touched the truth of the Dharma and practice, and it's so, it ignites something in you so strong that it's, everything else pales in comparison like a moth to a flame. And I really encourage you to stay connected to that place that just loves the truth, loves the Dharma. But even that is still duality, me loving the Dharma. So I wanna get on to the, the third quality, that, that the love that's based on emptiness that's not about me and other, uh, that's an even more profound love. And I just wanna, before going on there, remind you that every moment that you're mindful of unpleasant is a moment of cultivating non-hatred. And every moment that you're mindful of the aversion, you're not feeding that. So let's get on to this non-delusion. Remember, remember God, as Maharaji says. The word sati, which is usually translated as mindfulness, the actual definition is remembering. And when we remember to wake up into this moment and be present for our life, we are in that moment waking up with clarity and wisdom that sees things clearly, the definition of Vipassana. Every moment that we're mindful, we're seeing clearly and we are not being, not identifying with our experience. That's truly what non-delusion is about. You know, uh, Andrea, I think it was today, might have talked a little bit about wrong view. Wrong view is really taking ownership of experience where there's, it's just a construct in the mind or what's called the distortions, delusion, the vipalasas, distortions, she mentioned here, taking what's impermanent to be permanent, taking what is, what is suffering to be a cause of happiness, grasping, taking what is not self to be self. So non-delusion, there's nothing left out and you are not separate from anything. You're welcoming it all. The awareness sees it all, 
but it's not me doing it. It's life moving through you Mm -hmm. instead of me being mindful of my confusion. It's just confusion happening in the space of awareness. Awareness doesn't care. It doesn't care what it's seeing. It was was beautiful uh, uh, meeting I had with somebody the other day who talked about um, seeing all this mess inside and we, and we playfully explored and, and just seeing, we came down to, oh, it's just messy Buddha. That's all. And the more you can see it, it's just messy Buddha. How freeing instead of what a mess I am, just messy Buddha. Awareness doesn't care what it's seeing. Confusion, rage, lust, mess, love, compassion. Awareness can hold it all. It's like that big mind meditation. Everything just coming and going. Just life expressing itself through you. And even the awareness itself is not you. It's, that's the, the last thing sometimes to go. Okay, well, I'm seeing all of these things. Oh yes, look at my awareness. Yeah, I've got pretty cool awareness. You know. It's just coming through you. And to take it to be yours is missing the point. It's just awareness awareing. And there's no you behind it making it happen. And it's right here, right now, able to hold everything. And the mystery is we often miss it. It's so obvious and yet we miss it. And I want to read to you a passage from one of my most inspiring uh, sources of Dharma wisdom from the flight of the Garuda by the great Tibetan Shabkar. I'll just read this to you, see if you can relate. Emaho, which is like, how amazing. Check it out. How marvelous. Emaho. Listen carefully, fortunate children of my heart, he says. In both samsara and nirvana, the renown of the enlightened state is widely heard like thunder throughout the sky. As this always remains within the minds of beings of the six realms, how amazing that one is never separate from it for even an instant. Knowing that this state is within oneself, how amazing that one searches for it elsewhere. Although it is clearly manifest like the radiant disk of the sun, how amazing that so few see it. Having no father and mother, one's mind is the true Buddha. How amazing that it knows neither birth nor death. 
no matter how much happiness and sorrow is experienced, how amazing that it is never impaired or improved, even in the slightest. How amazing that without being fabricated, this mind which is unborn and primordially pure is spontaneously present from the beginning. This self-awareness is naturally free from the very first. How amazing that it is liberated by just resting at ease in whatever happens. This is non-delusion. The awareness that doesn't take ownership of anything that is shining through you all the time. And every moment that you're mindful and don't attach or identify, this is my, this is me, this is mine, whether it's good or bad, you're missing the key point to what the Buddha was talking about. Freedom comes in just that little flip of awareness to see I don't have to take ownership of anything. It's all just happening by itself. So I'll close with a favorite poem of mine that points to this, if I can find it. From Dana Falls. I think I might have read this uh, late one night, I'm not sure. Settle in the here and now Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath. Awareness knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath. Awareness waking up to truth. So let's sit for a few moments, let the words settle. Settle in the here and now. 
reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be but what you are already. Nothing to receive but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run toward, just this breath. Awareness knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness waking up to truth. Thank you for your kind attention. Mm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.